It's the Law and Business Podcast, hosted by Anthony Verna. We tackle the hard issues where law and business intersect to help you understand your business's legal obligations better. Anthony's law practice is focused on trademark, copyright, other intellectual property, and advertising and promotion law. You can contact him at anthony at vernalaw.com and at 212-729-5651. And now, the Law and Business Podcast. Welcome to the Law and Business Podcast. I'm here with, again, Jim Cushing. How are you doing, Jim? Hi, Anthony. And Jim, doing well, thanks. Everybody. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Tell everybody how, how to find you again. Plug away. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, Jim Cushing. You can find me as James W. Cushing on the Internet. And I work for the law office of Faye Riva Cohen, F-A-Y-E-R-I-V-A-C-O-H-E-N, in Center City, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I specialize in, or my office specializes in employment law, family law, and estate practice mainly, and some smattering of other plaintiff side stuff. Um, and I also have a blog, uh, judicialsupport.wordpress.com. Uh, oh, and my firm uh, w- website's law office I mean, is fayrevacohen.com. And you can reach me on the telephone at 215 563 Thanks, Anthony. No problem. And of course, if anybody listening has questions for me, I can be reached at anthony at vernalaw.com. This is my third time doing this, and it seems like you uh, you asked me to come on when we have nerdy subjects to discuss. So, Well, Good. you know, you, you're, you're a part of my uh, advanced circle of friends, right. <laughs> so having, having first met many years ago. And uh, I, I think, yes, there are a lot of nerds in our circles of friends. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're being polite and that's good of course of course but that's half the fun um but yeah so so our nerdy topic today is of course uh the marvel issues for lack of a better better word and you know to take that out to a further context because i actually did have a comic book case and there's stuff about that that i can uh, bring into this discussion, and of course, stuff that that is still, you know, attorney-client privilege. But I, I think you know we can we can easily talk about some of those some of those issues in general. And here, let's start with the Marvel. Jim, I'm going to let you take the 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 um, take it away on describing exactly what's going on with with Marvel Comics and ownership. Well, there's a couple of things. One of which I find to be terribly confusing, but another one. Not so much, but the, welcome to intellectual property. Right. <laughs> Thanks. There's um, as my, friend, as my friend Dave says, you guys live in a special level of hell. I with the intellectual property lawyers. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Marvel Comics, and I think you can explain the legalities of this a little bit better than I can. But there's there's a difference between owning a character and owning movie rights to that character. And uh, so Marvel Comics, the characters are owned by three separate movie fran- uh, movie uh, uh, I was going to say movie franchises, Studios. movie companies, I guess. Yeah, um, uh, Disney, which owns Marvel, owns uh, ironically what they believe to be the, the lesser characters of the Avengers, which is suddenly now a, a, the complete opposite. I mean, when Marvel basically back in the in the late '90s, uh, there was Marvel was struggling to get movies going. Because um, they really couldn't get anything sort of live action happening that was productive, uh, as opposed to DC, which has you know the, the long history of Superman and Batman and so on. Absolutely. And but Marvel but really re- only super, but really only Superman and Batman have been successful in the movies. Yeah, real, uh, yeah, of the high end sort of success. Or Dick Tracy's in there. I don't know who owns Dick Tracy, but I don't know if that was successful. Um, yeah, well, it was, and it was only one movie. That's true. That's true. 
I was I just thought of for whatever reason because I think it came out that the, the Tracy era was the Rocketeer was in there somewhere. Yes, no, that's um, true. And Swamp Thing was somewhere in there, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> did couple, anybody see Swamp Thing? <laughs> they somebody did because they made a second one. Um, <laughs> and so yeah, but Marvel was never able to get like a but but you know DC had Batman the TV show, Wonder Woman the TV show. I mean, but Marvel for whatever reason the, the live action stuff was never really much past the Incredible Hulk. Right. And and so uh, they they saw the opportunity for with technology and CGI and so on they, to to make movies in the OOs for one of a better term the aughts whatever you call that there you go the aughts yeah and and so they sold uh, Sony uh, the Spider Man franchise and they so sold Fox the the, the X Men franchise and the Fantastic Four franchise and they believed at the time that those were their top franchises because Spider Man obviously is arguably the most popular comic book hero of all time. Um, or perhaps Superman, I don't know. And and you know the Fantastic Four is their original super team, and and the X Men, right. of course, that had crossed crossed gender popularity for for years. Uh, yes. So that because a lot of women follow or girls or whatever follow the X Men, so they sold them off. So that left the characters in the Avengers sort of doing nothing uh, in terms of movies. So Disney never gave them up, <laughs> and then Disney purchased Marvel and decided to make a set of movies about those characters. And, and like I said, that those were the lesser ones for Marvel at the time. And uh, and now you have this weird situation where you have the X Men people happening on this movie, these sets of movies, the Marvel, the the rest of the Marvels over here, and the and the, the Spider Man specific ones over here. None of which can can cross over because they're all owned by separate companies. And uh, the only thing is, the only way they've been able to do crossovers is with these really strange. You know, to the movie viewer, you might not notice it, but if you're a comic book nerd or paying attention to this kind of stuff, you'd notice it. But like characters like Quicksilver, which is a a super fast running mutant type character, is somehow for one reason or another shared for by the Avengers and the X Men, right? So that character now appears in both, though not by the same actor and not technically speaking the same character. Right, because I, if I recall correctly, and I'm not going to sit here and say that I recall correctly. Um, the the name is mentioned in one movie, but not both. That's correct, and 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 he has a different last name, and and I think both. And then I just saw the X Men movie. Quicksilver doesn't appear till Avengers two, which is in May. So I don't know exactly how they're going to present it. But in the in Avengers Days of the Future Past, which I mean, excuse me, X Men Days of the Future Past, it came out in the summer, which I did see. Um, he uh is not for whatever reason he is not mentioned as Magneto's son, even though in the comic books he is. Because I, I guess I don't, and I don't know why they wouldn't play that up. But he has a different last name than than Magneto in those movies too. Whereas in the in the Avengers, they're not allowed to use the word mutant. That's owned by the X Men people. Um, even though Quicksilver is a mutant, and his sister is uh, the Scarlet Witch, who also appears in the Avengers movie or will be appearing. So, is your head spinning yet? Yeah, right. So that's why if you I don't oh, this is a spoiler for people who haven't seen this. In the next 2 seconds I'm going to say this. At the very end of <laughs> Captain America. Alert. Yeah, right. At the in the after credit scene of Captain America, uh there's a uh an appearance of Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch being captured by um uh his name escapes me now, one of the barons is a Nazi guy, a Hydra guy, and uh, he calls them miracles and as a way to Avoid using mutants, right? So, uh, so that's sort of like the the weird sort of movie conundrum that Marvel has has found itself, which I don't think applies in DC. Is that right, Anthony? I think um, I, I think pretty much everybody's sort of consolidated with DC because no I, one's made I, movies besides 
Batman and Superman. Well, Warner Brothers, yeah, Warner Brothers owns DC, and so I believe, I believe the DC movies are all all a part of Warner Brothers. The main DC. I mean, I don't know who owns the Watchmen. Right, exactly. Which is exactly. the main normal continuity of characters that we normally associate with DC. I think I, they're I all wasn't, I wasn't considering um, comic comic book movies that have been disowned and royalties not taken by the original creator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, Alan Moore is very much opposed to the movie making uh, of The Watchmen. Uh, I, it, for the record, that is one of my all-time favorite movies. So I know it's very controversial, but it can only be viewed in the nearly five-hour version. <laughs> Everything else is vastly inferior. Um, I don't ever seen that. There's the ultimate cut, and and you know Alan Moore has has disowned any movie version of anything he's put, including pen. V for Vendetta. Yes, yes. Well, and for V for Vendetta, and and we'll go off on a tangent here. He basically said that tangent. Um, Isn't that what podcasts are all about? I don't know. That's true. It is <laughs> uh, for for V for. Well, we're getting uber nerdy here. That that. <laughs> But for uh, V for Vendetta, Alan Moore said that he, uh, you know, it was very Americanized. He saw all of the government parallels as as Bush era America, and in reality, it was supposed to be, um, you know, whereas in reality, it was an English comic book about English politics and and English beliefs, and and he really saw it as very Americanized and disowned and did not like it for that particular reason. Uh, he said it has nothing to do about Republicans versus Democrats. It's about the form of government, whether it's fascism versus uh, democracy. And and I hope if anybody out there wants to correct me, they, they can certainly do that. And um, that was, that was, you know, and he saw it as, as, as very Americanized, even though they kept the setting of, of London, that they kept the, the, you know, they kept English people for the most part. Um. Yeah, Natalie Portman wasn't exactly English, but I, I enjoyed, not, not, I enjoyed not very... it. I enjoyed the film. I, I'm not a big V for Vendetta fan, and, I, and I'm going to sort of reveal myself in my comic book fandom, because I'm really a Marvel person. That's perfectly so, fine. Yeah. That's perfectly fine. I take no sides in the DC versus Marvel. That's um, right. You're the image comics. Uh, and, I, I... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> Hey, both have both have their strengths and weaknesses, and I'm not, you know, and and that's about it. But as for as for movie ownership, uh, yes, the rights can be split into different um, media, and if if some, you know, let's let's step back in copyright law. The owner of a copyright, and whether that owner is the original. Uh, artist slash creator slash author, depending on how you want to define it, or whether the author is, uh, whether the owner is the corporation to whom those rights have been granted, the copyright owner can split those rights in, into different media. And so there can be different television rights. There could be different. Um, you know, paper rights, and, and I'll say paper for comic books, or maybe novels themselves, or some other kind of kind of creation, coloring books, for example. So, so you can really divide and subdivide uh, your media. Coloring books. That's that's. I have two young sons, and that's. I, I read a lot of comic coloring books. <laughs> do your do your sons uh, color inside the lines? Well, my he they are getting better at that. Yeah, my older my older one has gotten he he takes it very seriously now. 
you, you know me, I'm going to teach them how to do it right outside the lines. We're going to show them the negative space first rather sure. than... <laughs> well, they'll never see a negative photograph, so, you know, they got to start somewhere. <laughs> there you go. So, so let um, me ask you a question about the film ahead. rights. Um, you know, everybody who's a comic book fan, or at least a, what they used to call fanboys, I guess, will know that there were some really, really, really crappy movies made in the 90s that that's only saw the light of day if you happen to go to your West Coast video and rent at them. Uh, and I'm thinking of um, Captain America. had a super terrible movie. Well, not super terrible. It was one of, one of the better of the terrible. Fantastic Four is awful, and you can watch by, that on YouTube. And by the way, and by the way, if you caught the, the Netflix season of Arrested Development, they... They they had an ongoing story arc about making a Fantastic Four movie that That's was true. utterly terrible. That's right about seeing a thing, and um, so in those movie when I and just so if people who are listening to this don't know, I'm not referring to Chris Evans and the Marvel movies and the the Fantastic Four ones that came out with what's her name uh, Alba a couple of years ago. I'm talking about yes. in the mid '90s where there there virtually no one ever saw them and and they're terrible. And and so I think they're called Ashcan movies. And my understanding, you can correct me, is that you have to use your rights within a certain number of years or else you lose them. And so they make these films on virtually no budget just to say they did something. Is that about right well, or no? The, 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 reason, the reason that it's that are the contracts. And essentially, those particular contracts, if I recall correctly, had options. And that's, that's where the options expired. If the, the options weren't used, they, were, they expired. And they went to somebody else. So a lot of these were were made in, um, you know, basically to fulfill the contract. And therefore, the option is kept open for another X amount of years, depending on the contract, as well as uh, the ability to make, you know, another movie. Now, is there a certain amount of, uh, like, good faith on the... Because, you know, if you watch this Fantastic Four movie, it is... It's pretty bad. I mean, you can, like I said, it's on YouTube. You can people go and look at it, and and <laughs> you know, if I were if I were somebody, let's say Marvel, who was interested in getting my property back, you know, could I make the argument that that obviously you didn't have, you had no, there was no good faith in making this film. I mean, it's it's terrible, and no one saw yeah. it. I mean, it's only on like some, you know, the back room of a West Coast video. Um, I, I think that con- that argument's a little more complex than than you might think. Uh, because yes, that that argument's there, but what's bad faith? Um, is bad faith the re- the requirement? You know, and and look at the time, it's not as if superhero movies had the the cachet that they do now. You know, we talked about it. There was Superman, there was Batman, and there were a bunch of one offs. But you know, Swamp Thing didn't really have a high budget. Um, no. The Rocketeer was was a successful movie, but there wasn't a sequel. So, what would be good faith? Is it is it a one million dollar movie? A ten million dollar movie? Uh, that that's really going to be the issue. Or a movie produ- that's released in a movie theater. Yes, but Perhaps. then they put this movie together and nobody liked it, and so it was spiked. And yeah. I, I think you can, I think it's not hard to make the argument that look, we we put some money into it, we had some some actors, and at, at the end, it, this was so bad, we we just spiked it, and there's no way that we were going to spend the money to distribute and market it because that would have been even more of a loss. So. Um, while I hear you that that this was not necessarily the um, the 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 work of something that felt like a good faith effort, I certainly think you could easily make that argument that it was a good faith effort. Yeah, uh, I just I guess in that vein, in terms of good faith uh, effort, is that I, I I don't know if people remember this, but there was maybe you do, Anthony. But there was in the '90s there was an X Men TV show. Do you remember that? 
Uh, you don't mean the animated one, right? No, no, live action. And I think, I and I'm pretty certain one. it was uh, by Fox. And I'm trying to remember what it was called. I think it was called Mutant X or something like that. Let me see if I can... Uh... Yeah, it Mutant was... Mutant X uh... TV show. Here you go, Mutant X. Yeah. Oh, I do remember this. It was really... Uh, you know, it was very sort of strange in terms of, uh, you know, they didn't have the traditional characters you may expect, but it was very mutant-esque and X-Men-esque, I should say. And Victoria right, Pratt right. was in it, who I think was the biggest name in the show, which, that she's sort of like a, a I don't want to say a name, but she's a purveyor of bad TV sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, so if so people who look at that stuff would know who she is. But, um, yeah, no, I, rem- I, re- I remember this now. I, I don't know that I saw it, but I, I knew that it existed. Um, but I, I, if I recall correctly, there was a lawsuit about about that as well. But I'm not very, very, very familiar with it at all. But except that there was one. Okay. Um, now that I'm thinking about it, but you, you know, part of the issue, part of the issue here is that you know, again, just stepping st- stepping back and looking at the broader issues, you have. Um, you know, you can split those rights, and in Hollywood, look, there's options all the time because it takes a long time to get a movie made, or even a television show, especially when it's going to be this complex. Um, yeah, I, I and remember, if I remember right, I think making the new Man of Steel was like what twenty years in the making. So, something right. to that effect, yes, because it resulted. Um, you might remember Superman Returns with right. Brandon right. Brandon Routh. As much as I've tried not to. I do I, I've actually I've actually avoided it completely. I never saw it. Okay. And um, you, you know, so you had that, and then right, then Man of Steel took took about twenty years after that to 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 be made. No, I'm, maybe with Superman Returns, I'm thinking of it. I mean, that took a long time to get made. That did take a long time to get made. Yes, it did. And don't forget with uh, the Amazing Spider-Man, you know, new trilogy. That was done basically because of an option as well. There, there. Um, I believe Spider-Man is a part of Sony Pictures. Yes, that's correct. You, you, Sony Pictures. I don't know if you've had... ever seen the movie, but you, you can't help but know that it's from Sony Pictures when you watch it. <laughs> I, I, I saw Superman, uh, Spider-Man one and two, and then didn't see three. Haven't seen the Amazing Spider-Man series. It just, at some point, I'm like, this is this is a rehash. Um, because I thought two was basically a rehash of one, but Amazing anyway, Spider Man two was was not that good. Amazing Spider Man one was pretty good. Yeah. Um, that that doesn't really thrill me to go see it. But the, <laughs> yeah, that was ringing doors enough. <laughs> the um, but the issue there was that there was an option up, and uh, Sony basically found lukewarm response to making Spider Man four. And if I recall correctly, uh, the original cast wasn't going to do it. Sam Raimi didn't want to direct again. So instead of um, making a Spider-Man 4 in the the vein of doing, you know, Batman uh, 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 forever, you know, with, with a totally different cast, uh, and then Batman and Robin with yet another totally different cast, right. the, you know, they just, they just decided to reboot and... Um, and, and try to start again, which is what they did. So it it was for some people, for some commentators, it was a very cynical move on Sony's um, part uh, to basically, you know, show us a movie that we already had seen maybe ten years ago, 
uh, you know, with, with the Amazing Spider-Man. But they did it to keep the option open, and that's a part of the the issue in this partic- in this particular uh, contract or series of contracts because it's never just one. But yeah, they're doing they're issue, doing sort of the same thing with the Fantastic Four sets of movies. They they didn't seem to think that the first set had a whole lot of success or not where they wanted it to be anyway. So they're they're not doing a soft reboot like the the last X Men movie. They're doing a, a hard one. Right, they're restarting the franchise. Is what? What's do you know? Know what studio that one's with? Because what Fantastic Four? Yeah. Oh, uh, that's with Fox. It's owned by the same as the X Men people. So okay, okay. So it's not going to be a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as they're um, calling it, is it? Uh, no, that's not part of the Cinematic Universe. As much as they would Which like it to be. In fact, um, uh, strangely enough, the Marvel. The Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic, it's sort of confusing, so I, I want to be clear. The, the Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe is owned by Marvel Comic Books, who makes the comic books. And, uh, and Disney, of course, is the umbrella. But my understanding uh, from my being in the comic book nerdy world is that the com- Marvel Comics is more or less trying to uh, passively resist the Fantastic Four movie. Set, a new, the new sets of Fantastic Four movies by basically shutting down the Fantastic Four comic book and discontinuing sort of advancing that franchise in the comic books because they because they're hoping that it, it sinks and that and that Fox will be motivated to sell it off back to Marvel. Uh, who knows? You know, you know, these days comic books themselves don't make money, and they just exist as loss leaders for other licensing properties such as television shows and and the movies. So I, it, that's not really a surprising, you know, play that they're making. Yeah, I mean, because it's, you know, I mean, I, 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 I am personally surprised at the the idea that the Fantastic Four will be that popular. I, I think they're sort of, as much as I like the Fantastic Four, they seem to be sort of hokey in today's comic book sort of reality. But maybe not. I don't know. Well, I, I guess you're going to be getting a grittier. More realistic, fantastic. Well, it's hard to know. All the rumors out there are, are range from terrible to ridiculous. So I'm not sure. <laughs> Wait, there are rumors? I am shocked, I tell you. Shock, shock, shock. Right, right. You, you know, this ownership issue is, is not surprising to me. Because, one, the comic book industry itself has a history of being, um, let's just say, all over the place. How does that sound? Well, I mean, are, are you going to raise the, the image comics revolution? No, not necessarily. I, I'm just saying in general. I mean, um, when a... You know, it's it's interesting to me that a um, comic book company like DC or Marvel has their standard lines, and those lines can, you know, cross with each other. They have their subsidiaries, and of course... Um, you know, none of those, you know, quote unquote universes may may ever touch. But uh, and that's true with Marvel as well. But you saw before Marvel was was bought by Disney, one set of, of character you know, one one set of books uh having movie rights in one studio, another another set of, of books being in, in another studio. And in a way, what was precious in the comic books to them, being able to, to, to make those characters interact from time to time doesn't exist in other media. And well, that's one of the things that makes comic books a lot of fun is that, you know, Batman can meet Superman at some point. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um and and it's it's but it's a new 
idea to do that in other uh, in other media. You know, there there yeah. never was a Batman and Superman movie. You know, until you know next year. I would note uh, that Marvel is really the comic books company that revolutionized the idea of the crossover. I mean, that's there you go. They did that from the very very beginning. And but yet in other media that wasn't ever the case, you know. So so that's that's all I'm that's all I'm pointing out. In movies it was it was we sold the rights to one set of characters or one character, and and that movie company gets it, the next movie company gets it, and it's only until recently has uh, you know with with the Avengers uh, line has that been thought of as something to do in movies. Yeah, there was truly a world building effort with that. They, that that's never been undertaken in that way, I don't think. You know, but but like I said, I've I've known the the comic book industry to be um, sloppy, for lack of a better word. I think I think I'll use that word when it comes to dealing with their own rights, and and to protecting themselves. Uh, the the lawsuit that I dealt with, and um, I'm not going to give too many details, but I'm sure Doctor Google could could easily help anybody find the details that I was involved with, but. Uh, I represented the artist, and um, you know, just to show you, you know, why I'm saying what I'm saying. The the artist, of course, uh, for most of us, would say, well, the artist isn't the one that owns the the work; it's the comic book company. And and I think a lot of us inherently might uh, agree with that particular statement. Copyright law says that, of course, it's the artist that owns or the author that owns um, any work that falls under copyright law, unless it's given over. Uh, and usually, if it's done by employment, then um, you know, then obviously, you know, something that you do that falls under copyright law that furthers your employment belongs to your employer. That makes perfect sense. Uh, anything that is done if you're an independent contractor in furtherance of what we call a work made for hire agreement, then that work belongs to the um, you know the contractee, I guess. Um, you know the company that that commissioned it. So my question, you know, is if a comic book company basically says everybody is an independent contractor and gives everybody an IRS 1099 form because they're not employees and nobody gets you know insurance or health benefits because or retirement benefits because nobody's an employee, um, they had better have their their work for hire agreements sewn up and therefore making sure that they own the rights to all the work that's um, uh, being created. And I can tell you that um, um, that might be the case now, <laughs> but 10 years ago and, and previous to that, a lot of comic book companies uh, were very sloppy with handling, with handling the rights. And with the lawsuits that, that you see, whether it's uh, the Kirby suit, um, I'm, I'm, I know that Stan Lee has resolved his particular differences with, um, you know, Marvel and and Disney, um, but I know that there are some people out there who are still claiming that that's not quite the case. Um, comic book companies are very sloppy with with keeping their intellectual property straight, and then and and you see that on the front end, you know, coming out in different you know media and licensing, and you see it on the back end with actual creation as well. Well, isn't that one of the reasons what, that sort of spa, sparked or inspired the creation of image comic books? Because there was uh, a move uh, for, for people who don't follow comic book history in the beginning of the 90s, there became this sort of 
uh, loyalty to the artist, you know, Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, and people like that. Who sure. and they started wielding a lot of influence and power in terms of sales and and creation and so on. And, so, and they said, "Hey, this isn't fair. This is my stuff." And people like Stan Lee said, "No, it's it has the Marvel name on it, so it's mine or ours." And so right. they said they went and created its image, which was the way to have preserved the creator's rights within an umbrella, a greater umbrella of a comic book company. No, that's absolutely that that's absolutely correct. Part of that is is frankly terrible corporate culture in the industry to begin with. And you when you, know, when look, you by I, that you mean the the a lack of respect for the a creator. I I would say the lack of communication. I don't necessarily know about respect. Okay. Um I I I would say, look, I would say if um you're being paid by by the work chances are where you're working isn't going to respect you as much as you think you know, it should. And, and I think that's endemic, you know, to society, but at least, uh, you know, in the comic book industry, there really wasn't a very good communication policy. I can tell you today, that's not the case. If you're working for, um, if you're working for, for Marvel and you're an artist in Marvel, you will not just sign a work for hire agreement. That's, that's very blanketed. You will also for all of your pay vouchers, be signing a work for hire agreement so that they have, you know, your, you know, your agreement that, that what you made is a work made for hire so that Marvel owns that work from in the beginning and at each pay period. Um, that might sound harsh, but, um, you know, we don't necessarily get all of these particular, um, you know, cinematic universes without that particular protection. And, it, it it really does exist to protect lawsuits like the Kirby lawsuit, like you know whatever Stanley was was doing. Um, Superman's creators uh, were were still fighting with with uh, they were, they DC. Were notoriously, until they notoriously lost their rights until the movie came out. Yes, yes, exactly. And I still think exactly. they got like sixty five thousand dollars or something <laughs> like really small. No, it, it it yeah it it was something like that. But of course, when when Superman was created, when, when, you know, in the, you know, thirties and forties when Superman and Batman weren't created in the sixties, when, uh, you know, when Stan Lee was at the height of his, his creation and, and Kirby, Jack Kirby was at the height of his creation. Copyright law wasn't as, um, wasn't as sophisticated as it is today, because frankly, so many, so many articles of work just fall under copyright law. Um, but from, from a corporate policy standpoint, that's what that's what a company that has to deal with artwork and with a lot of work that falls under copyright law in order to you know use it make money license it you really need to stay from the beginning if we have a, a department of people who you know are creating work that falls under copyright law we need to make sure that that the company is the owner and you're going to do that in either one of two ways you're either going to make them an employee and if somebody is an employee you have to deal with the employee um work you know behind it you know whether it's health insurance and benefits and um all, all those other good you know good things or they're independent contractors and you're just going to have a ton of paperwork discussing what a work for hire uh you know work made for hire is and what those work for hire agreements look like and you're just going to have to have a ton of them signed right but even and, with that though is, wouldn't it it's fair to say that there's still you know, individual issues or um, instances where, uh, let's say, a creator gets attribution whenever the character is used. So, like, Batman movies always say created by Bob Kane, for example. And aren't there royalties that go to him or his estate for that at this point? 
Well, sure. I mean, look at every Star Trek movie since since Roddenberry passed, you know, based right. on Star right. Trek by Gene Roddenberry. Right. Um, right. You know, so, yeah, there's credit given, and, and I'm sure there's something worked out with, you know, with the estates just, just to do that. Credit is not... Um, credit doesn't speak here uh money speaks here and credit is is nice yeah but it's it's not it's not the be all end all because ultimately a copyright infringement is is that some is that the infringer or accused infringer uh made a work or sold a work or made copies of a work or or publicly performed a work and presumably there was some aspect of money exchanging hands there to to which would then create you know damages for copyright infringement and so the credit is is nice don't get me wrong but if you know a company is making movies that they don't have the 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 right to then ultimately there's an exchange of money that has to take place um yeah so speaking of, of something like that you know, what does maybe I don't know if this runs uh, sort of askew of what we're trying to talk about, but what is it that makes character a character in terms of intellectual property rights? Because I have some falls... specific questions in that regard. So go ahead. That, that's 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 fine. That's fine. Now now we're getting to nerdy law talk instead yeah. of nerdy comic book talk. But that's okay. <laughs> when when an author takes an idea and puts it on medium copyright and puts it on a medium copyright law attaches and in in an instance like this if somebody has an idea an artist has an idea for a character and and we'll just start off blank and then that um that author starts going through iterations of what the hair might look like or what the costume might look like or or what the secret identity might look like or or whatever else all of that falls under copyright law. Now, there are also trademark rights. Once you're taking these particular characters or the names and you're making money with it, so you're selling a book series or you're trying to license it to other, to other media. And in that particular case, trademark law is all about what a consumer thinks of when a consumer sees a business brand, name, logo, slogan, something like that. So... While Batman and Superman are registered trademarks of, of DC Comics, by the way, the word superhero is a registered trademark that is shared by DC and Marvel. They, they both enforce, uh, they both own and enforce the, the word superhero. It's, but, but, so that word ahead. cannot be used without some kind of arrangement <laughs> with, by, like, say, image. In a, in a, um, in a comic book. Or, or other related media, um, you know, point of view. Yes, you are correct. Yeah, you and I can say the word superhero until our lungs turn blue. Nobody can do anything about it. Sure. <laughs> Just like we can sit here and say Apple until our, until our lungs turn blue. So anyway, copyright law attaches as soon as there's this um, this drawing on a piece of paper or on a computer screen, and that's when copyright law starts. Now. You need to register your copyrights, so any artist out there needs to file that copyright registration. And trust me when I say comic book companies register every issue, uh, that's required. It's, I shouldn't say it's required. You can't start a lawsuit without it. You can't enforce a copyright without the registration. So 
it's it's important to get that registration, even though copyright law attaches the second that idea is on that piece of paper. Um, there, there's nothing that can be done about it. Now, the tricky part here, Jim, is if an artist is at home, you know, drawing characters, and that artist, you know, happens to be, um, you know, let's just say a full-time employee of a comic book company. Right. And then, and then you know, then we can muddy the waters and, and say, what if they're an independent contractor? But if that person's an, an, a, um, you know, an artist and, and an employee of a comic book company is drawing on a piece of paper in furtherance of, of the job. And, you know, who owns that particular copyright? Because there is a copyright, again, that once there's, um, you know, once there's an idea on a piece of, on a fixed medium. So, yeah, so I guess that, come, that leads me to a couple of questions that I was, I had penciled in before I, we made this call was, like, for example, what does it mean to create a character, right? So you have Bob Kane, who's, you know, the Batman creator. But right. but Bill Finger, uh, who's his I guess his associate or assistant uh, or I don't know I don't know what his relationship, but they worked together at DC or what was DC then, and he Bob, Bill Finger came up with a ton of stuff that we would now associate with Batman, like the utility belt and the Batcave, and and the same thing with Superman, right? Jerry Siegel came up with the, this idea of like this strong guy from another planet, but you know it was radio and TV that gave him flight. And uh, it gave him the Fortress of Solitude and, and other things that we think of when we think of Superman. So, right. so, so why do those guys aren't? Are, are, what, how do those guys get put into the sort of the stew for these characters? You know that, that that's a harder question to answer because we're dealing with one another time when the law was different as well, and also a corp, quote unquote corporate culture, for lack of a better phrase, that I'm not going to claim to be familiar with because I'm sure that it wasn't as formalized then as as it would be today. Um, so I'll, I'll say this. There's probably going to be, um, for lack of a better word right now, credit given to, to each of them because they each had input and they are each authors. So in today's world, what we would do is we would say, well, this, this uh, work has joint authors to it and so while one may one person may have um you know created the outfits the other you know somebody else created the stories behind it and so there's some kind of joint authorship there and it's it's going to be hard to split the baby so copyright law the the statute does not really try to do that the statute says if there are joint authors then joint authors share equally and so it doesn't matter if you're a 10% author or a 90% author. If there are joint authors absent an agreement, there's always that, then right, you're going to be getting, then, then you're going to be splitting credit 50-50 and you're going to be splitting uh, royalty rates 50-50. And also, absent an agreement, a joint author can go license under the nose of, of any other authors. Well, the thing with comic book characters, though, I mean, they're around for literally a lifetime right generations now and so you know you have elements of a character can be added in long after the creator is is dead absolutely so i mean look at the you know does superman shave or 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 does he you know burn the the hairs uh you know with his laser eyes off of a mirror oh yeah Uh, i mean how else we shave of course (laughs) 
does his hair trim so nicely also, you know? All the time. Well, it's precision, right? I mean, come on. Um, <laughs> I mean, the idea that you're asking is, he has mirrors, his, his, his bathroom is a 360 mirror, of course. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Or maybe it can be cut with like a Fortress of Solitude icicle. <laughs> But but you realize that that you know in the '90s when when DC introduced that particular aspect, you know people were like flipping out about it. Or um, I think he had long hair in the '90s, right? You know, for a brief time, yeah, he had a something of a Nicolas Cage kind of mullet. Yeah, so so you know people were flipping out about it. Um, but but those were changes to the character. And um, well, Wolverine's yeah, a classic mean, example. I mean, he's all he's been he's totally different than when he was started. They had no idea what he was going to be. Or Venom is another one, right? So, did, did those guys get added into the mix as co-creators of this of this character now, or are they? I, I, I would no, no, they wouldn't. I mean, you know, especially when it comes down the line like that. If you're coming down the line, and and. You know, chances are everything that you're doing would would fall under what is a work made for hire. Then chances are your additions are works that are made for hire and not really a part of the creation. Okay. Yeah. Even even Just though because... sometimes your your elements that you add are are as known or more known than some of the original elements. That's just the luck of the draw. Absolutely correct. Yeah, and I know that sounds harsh and unfair, but yes, you are absolutely correct on that. So uh, let me ask you another one. Let's let's take the Hulk for example. And, and I, I guess you can make an assumption that is he's. I know the laws are different in 1963 or whatever it was, but <laughs> so. But you know, uh, I don't know. It's one of those one of those uh, little known facts outside the comic book circles that the Hulk wasn't always green, right? So, the the first five issues or so of the Hulk, he was gray, but for whatever reason, the colorist had a hard time maintaining the gray, so he arbitrarily made him green. There's no in-story explanation for that at the time, but right. they they went they sense like as as comic books are wont to do. They go, they, you know, ten years later, they explain, "Oh yeah, we totally meant to do that," and and this is why. And even though it wasn't, so uh, so I, so they guess the question is, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna copyright things on a, you know, as you're describing, you know, as by day almost, right? So or, or by contract, you know, the 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 Hulk was a, is is a brooding gray character, and so if someone came up with you know the incredible bulk who was gray and you know did whatever or the credible bulk he's always tells the truth and he just happens to be large and gray or something and so that, obviously that would be a problem but you know now that now that he sort of arbitrarily made him green does marvel now have a uh, uh, some kind of copyright over uh, the multicolored hulk so now there's a red hulk right although that's sort of an intentionally created character but the blue the gray and green seems to be you know that was sort of an oops and they made him green for time immemorial, basically. And, and do they now have like some kind of ownership over a gray character that's large and crazy, and and the green one, even though they, that was just sort of a coloristic, you know, technology problem? I would say the process matters as well. And let's look at what happens with with the comic book process. I mean, somebody creates um, a character. Somebody, you know, somebody else might draw panels. Somebody else might, or excuse me, somebody might write the story. And, um, you know, kind of do some stick panels and then somebody else might draw the panels and then somebody else will ink, ink it done. Yeah, usually they're all separate jobs. Exactly. So on, on one hand, you know, if, if the character, if, if a character's color had to change or something like that, I don't know that we would necessarily, um, you know, call that creative input. Although, frankly, that's kind of how we see that that character today, and that's a part of the, yeah. Know, the Hulk is green. That's part of who he is. Yes. 
But, but, but like, if someone created a, a large character that's gray, would then Marvel say, hey, that's the Hulk, but even though everyone knows the Hulk is yellow? Because it's causing confusion in the marketplace. It's one of the standards, right? So. Well, 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 that, that, that would be a trademark standard, not a copyright standard. Okay. And, and part of the issue there that you're going to have is, you know, from a copyright infringement standpoint, how similar are they? Like, am I, have I contributed something new or am, or am I just really ripping off somebody else? And that's going to be a part of, of that. You know, is it really, you know, is this just a part of, you know, is this new work really not new, for lack of a better question to ask? But that's where you're going to start. Okay. From a trademark standpoint, because we're, you're dealing with, um, you, you know, because we're also dealing, you know, when, when we're dealing with intellectual property, there's always multiple rights. From a trademark standpoint, that's going to be a little more tricky because the question there is right. The Incredible Hulk is a is is probably a registered trademark, and my uh, you know my thought is that chances are the gray Incredible Hulk hasn't really been used the way the green has in order to get consumers and to show that this is a Marvel product or something to that effect. And I'm not saying it hasn't been done. I'm just guessing that it's been less, you know, it's, it's less than the green. So there might not be such strong trademark rights in a big gray character as there is in a big green character. Okay, that makes sense. So you're talking about ripoffs, right? So one of the reasons why I hate the Green Arrow, who is a popular television show right now called Arrow, besides that, even though I can suspend my disbelief about a crazy alien come from another planet as a baby, I just can't imagine some superhero walking around the city with a bow and arrow, but... Um, be that as it may, uh, the Green Arrow started life as a Batman ripoff, right? So he had the Arrow yeah, Cave. I didn't realize that. Yeah, he had the Arrow Cave and the Arrowmobile, and he was a rich playboy who had this dark past. Who was a superhero, right? So he's he's like a Batman. Uh, I can't remember who his creator is at this very second, but yeah. So I mean, that it seems pretty similar, but it, it, it's it's but it's unless if you look at it, but it's really he's a different character. I, I don't know if that's is that something that would be the the subject of a lawsuit that like hey this is uh he's just a, a batman who shoots arrows well it, it very well could be um there's the um you know there's the case of uh, lucas arts uh, or i should say lucas films and then i forget which studio created battlestar galactica but they basically sued each other and i and you know, basically, it was it was uh, Lucasfilm started basically, and they basically said, "Here are all the list of similarities between the Star Wars movies and Battlestar Galactica." And it, I think this lawsuit started, of course, in '79 or '80. And ultimately, the appeals, uh, the the circuit, it was it went to the Ninth Circuit uh, appeals court, and basically they said, "Yeah, if you if you line up all of these similarities." You see that there are, you know, that that, you know, Battlestar Galactica has some kind of derivative of Star Wars, and I think today we might, um, we we our our uh, sensitivities might be different. You know, we might say, okay, but this is just what space operas do. You know, space operas have um, ships and they fight it, you know, and they fight each other and. You know whatever whatever other similarities are are out there. Like how many you know you can't have a space you know story without actually having ships, and you have to have bad guys. And so, sure, sure. 
And so those particular similarities that the Ninth Circuit found back in 1980, probably, or, or you know, whenever the, the appeals uh, decision was made, I should say 86 or so, um, it, it, it's going to be different than I think what we find today. I think you could say that, that in your example, Jim, that there's a that there's a chance of, you know, that there is some risk of being a defendant in, in a copyright infringement suit. Well, DC but, purchased the character, so it sort of uh, nullified that. But, it, this, but yes, they did, of course. Right, but they had a very similar, uh, they did actually go to suit uh, against Fawcett Comics years back against uh, Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel. Shazam. And, uh, and yeah, with Superman. Well, that's a different, see, that's the weird, because Captain Marvel became the subject of lawsuits with, with Marvel Comics and DC Comics. <laughs> right, because what bad luck that is, right? So, um, because DC said, "Hey, Captain Marvel is basically a Superman ripoff," and Ca- and Marvel Comics said, "Hey, he's using our name, Marvel," because that was the very first Marvel yes. Comics is Marvel Comics. So, yes. uh, number one. So, uh, you know, now they so they had this weird thing with Marvel where they can't use his name on the cover of any comic book. Right, which is why they just call him Shazam. In fact, in the new movie coming out, that's coming out in the next couple of years, starring The Rock. Uh, he's going to be. It's going to be called. I think the character in, in the title is going to be Shazam. I don't think they're using the yeah. word because Captain Marvel is going to be, you know, a, a Marvel comic book character superhero movie coming out around the same time, starring uh, the character called Gail Danvers. Because uh, originally it was Marvel, right? Because they had to make it interesting. Um, <laughs> right. So they had so Marvel, but so they got. So he was a subject of both because of the name and the look and the the, the type of character he was, which is a super strong yes. guy with a cape. Yes. Yeah, no, exactly. It, it had that particular issue uh, with it. And, I mean, I know that that lawsuit was settled, and I don't... Um, well, Marvel, DC took over the character, that one, too. I mean, they, that seems to be their way of settling co- uh, lawsuits, is just buying the character. It's not a bad way of going, <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but that's, that, that, to me, seems to be even more tenuous than Green Hour and, Bla- and Batman, because, yeah, they're both sort of square-jawed, dark-haired guys with capes but but, but you know by Captain, the way, what by the way just just to let you know because i i just pulled it up but um the um the appeals court basically stated that um the superman copyright was valid but while the character of captain marvel um was not an infringement certain storylines or other characteristics of the character could be infringements and okay okay it was okay. sent it was sent down for another trial and before the second trial because you know, even even in the fifties, nobody wants to go through two trials <laughs> for uh, for any uh, particular issue. Yeah, so because that makes more sense. Because Captain Marvel, he's not like a, an alien. He's got so well, like the, the the wisdom of Solomon, the strength of Hercules, and this and right, like all these mythological characters. Yes, exactly. Uh, the speed of Hermes or something. Um, <laughs> I forget the S H A Z A M. Solomon. They all. I have it up. I have it up in front of me. Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, and and. Yeah, there you go. Or Hermes. I meant Mercury, not Hermes. I guess the same person. But yeah, so he has that weird like shoulders cape, and not the full cape too. Right. It's only on one side. Um, and then yeah, because Shazam had that whole. They create like the whole family of Marvels, like the Ms. Marvel, Captain Marvel mom, Captain Marvel son. I mean, all these like the Marvel family. Right. So they all wear like different color outfits. So they obviously that's not really a Superman thing. But you know that's another one. You know like. Not to get on that tangent, but you know, there's the at some point in the in the history of comic books, like the when when having man attached to your name was like the thing. Um, there was a whole variety of you know variants, right? There was Superman, Supergirl, Superboy, Super Superdog, literally. 
Um, sure. and, and so there's Superman, there's Spider-Man, Spider-Woman. So there's this weird thing. How does this work? And maybe it's just the word wonder, I guess, isn't trademarkable or copyrightable, but Wonder Woman, famous uh, you know, uh, person who, who invented the, the lie detector test and was very interested in female bondage, created Wonder Woman, uh, <laughs> who had a lasso who bound you and made you tell the truth. And, um, and she was, by the way, in bondage in every issue, at least for like the first 20 years. Um, okay, so that's, that's an established DC character, no doubt. But then you have Wonder Man, and DC apparently forgot to get that one, and that's now a Marvel. That's been a Marvel character for at least 40 years. So. No, really? I had no idea. Well, yeah, Wonder Man, he's an android and something or other. And um, <laughs> he was involved with... He became sort of associated with the Vision and the original Human Torch and so on. So, gotcha. But anyway, uh, but yeah, so does that... I guess every iteration of a name isn't automatically presumed to be yours just because you happen to use Wonder Woman. Is that about? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, let's let's start that from from a trademark standpoint. Um, well, the first issue is is at this point in time, um, it's it's just because uh, because I, I pulled up Wonder Man here. He's been around since 1964. Yeah, he's an Avenger. So right. So it's um, it, it's a little late to put the cat back in the bag. No, right, but by 1964, so, could have DC said, "Hey, hey, that that Wonder theme, that's that's our thing." Yeah, I mean, you would you would have thought that that that's something that they would have done. Now, in today's world, uh, when you're doing something like that, uh, you would probably want to claim uh, not just trademark infringement of one trademark, but uh, if you have something like that, then it would be a, a family of trademarks, and um, I, I, you know, the, to me, the 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 family of trademarks that that looks good is you know anything from McDonald's you know they do MC everything you know you know you know chicken Mick Nuggets you know the oh, yeah, Mick yeah. Cafe the um, you know you know anything that, that comes from McDonald's has has almost anything from McDonald's has MC in it so uh, you you need to uh, look at look at that and that's a part of the 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 issue now. In here, it's going to be a little trickier because I'm sure there really wasn't like a Wonder Girl or a Wonder Boy or something like that. So maybe there wasn't necessarily a Wonder family of trademarks. I think there's Wonder when... Girl. I think Wonder Girl is real. Okay. I think that's her um, like her little cousin or sister. Yeah. You know. So it's it's a little it's a little you know I I know we're being picky in here, but it's a little we're lawyers. Hard we're, to... Of course, we're picky in. <laughs> we make a living on being picky in. But to you know, to me, that might not necessarily be a family of trademarks. Two might not might not necessarily be enough. And the question is, is how are they used as well? A family of trademarks really needs to be used as a family. You need to show that consumers will see, uh, you know, the Spider Man and Spider Girl and Spider Boy as the same, or Superboy, or you know, the 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 Wrath of the Supermen at the time, you know, and those particular issues. Uh, need to be shown that consumers recognize a family of trademarks. So uh, it's it's a powerful um, it's a powerful claim for trademark infringement if you as a plaintiff can do it. But it's it's not necessarily something that everybody's able to do. Yeah, I guess it's the more unique of the word too, right? Because the spider is a character that exists that has nothing to do with Spider Man. Because spider is just a word. But I guess if you had, like I said, it's sort of sort of being funny earlier about the incredible bulk. I mean that's that's very similar to the word Hulk or something. Well and, and there and there comes into into what we would call the dominant portion of, of a trademark. And for a lot of trademarks, 
what you you know for a lot of people who um who are being sued the first thing i say is well you know look at your first syllable and if or your first word and if it's something like that if you're coming up right with the incredible bulk <laughs> incredible bulk right he's a truth telling big guy <laughs> that sounds like a C-grade wrestler, doesn't it? <laughs> That's right. That's right. He'll put you into submission and make you to tell the truth. Would, would he be a heel or a face? And is that, this is really terribly nerdy. Okay, moving on. The, um, the, the, what you're going to find there is, hey, look, your first problem is that you're dealing with the, the, incredible, incredible, and then, and then two words that rhyme. Yeah. So that's going to be, that's going to be a little bit uh, of an issue. I, I had a trademark case... Um, last year where I first off is one of the rare cases that went to the trademark trial and appeal board oral arguments. And huh. that, that really is a rarity uh, to go to oral arguments. Usually most people are happy after, after briefs. All right, moving but, on humble brag. No, just kidding. Um, it's not a humble brag. It's just, <laughs> this is, this is, you know, the, the board ruled uh, uh, this particular case. My client uh, is making an auto, uh, uh, Auto, uh, excuse me, an epinephrine auto injector. Okay. You know, like the EpiPen, and of course, you know, Myelin uh, Pharmaceuticals uh, was the plaintiff, and my client was doing it is doing it in a key shape. So Epi Key is what my client was calling it, and basically the board said, uh, what you have is Epi, which uh, you know may or may not stand for epinephrine, but but. Um, you know, and then the shape of the device, along with Epi and the shape of the device. So when you look at EpiPen versus EpiKey, my other argument on that was that EPI you really did stand for epinephrine, and therefore it was descriptive, and you had to move on past the descriptive part of the trademark. Um, so the board didn't didn't recognize any of the evidence um, that that we put in, but but oh well, so we lost that case, but. What I'm saying there is that the dominant portion really does matter. And if the only argument that you have to trademark infringement is to um, demystify <laughs> the, the dominant portion and try to make it a descriptive portion of the trademark, you know, there might not be such a hot argument there for you. Okay, so that, you but, know, but what about, for example, The Avengers, which is everyone knows is right. the movie. But there's also The Avengers, which is that uh, TV show. I'm not sure if it was based upon something else. I'm sure it was. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, the, um, yes. And I think it was based upon a series of books on, or something like that. The British. The yeah, British, that's uh, right. Yes, yes. There was a movie that came out that came in, the, in, in the 90s about the Avengers, I think. It was like Uma Thurman. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And Sean, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Uma Thurman, Sean Connery. Yeah, so, I mean, how do they... So that's two, two oh, you know, two names of, you know, obviously action-adventure. Right. Are they not comic booky enough? Well, I would say, I, I would say on one particular issue, again, we're dealing with, you know, after 30 or 40 years, it's it's impossible to put the cat back, back in the bag. Um, that that would be issue one. Issue two is probably their their origin. One is British, one is English. I mean, one is American. Um, so, so that's going to be an issue as well. But I would also say, when you look at what's in it, um, the the contents themselves are radically different. So, yeah, while the Avengers might be a registered trademark of Marvel, and I'd have to go look this up. Um, and you know what? I'll do that right now, since since we've have these wonderful things called the internet. Right, the interwebs. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, look, the event Marvel Disc Wars, the Avengers. The Avengers, let's see, let's see, when is this one? Magazine, you know, magazine published periodically. That is the goods and services described for the Avengers. And, you know, while that might be um, true, basically the Avengers for other things isn't necessarily going to be able, you know, able to be enforced against something else that's been around 30, 40 years. Sure, sure. But also, when you look at the Avengers TV show versus the Avengers uh, magazine published periodically, I mean, those goods and services are different. That's true. And, and so their entry points are, are radically different. And, and that's where you would have to start with. Okay, okay. And then there's, all right, I know I'm hitting you with a lot of stuff, but no, that's okay. have you ever heard this of... Is what in, I do, this is what I do all day, so don't worry about have it. Have you ever heard of uh, Squadron Sinister in the Marvel comics? Squadron? No, they're, man. I mean, that, you're, getting, you're getting a little... <laughs> yeah, they're a little, little, you know, whatever, but they, they, it's basically a set of bad guys who they've used the characters in other contexts context since then, but um, not to get bogged down in the comic story, but they basically, each character in the Squadron... Has, is like a double of a of a Justice League DC character. Oh, gotcha. They're like they're you know like uh, Bizarro when kind of, but it's different characters. DC. So like there's like Hyperion who's basically Superman, or the Wizard who sounds like he just pees on people, but no, he's a fast running <laughs> Flash character. He whizzes around, right? And then there's not, oh, gotcha. right? And then there's Nighthawk who's obviously Batman, and I can't remember who Doctor Spectrum. Oh, Doctor Spectrum supposed to be the Green Lantern. Right. In a way, it was their it was their way of of mocking DC. So satire obviously is one of the one of the exceptions, right? To to copyright infringement, you can always comment and criticize. Um, and I shouldn't say always. There are going to be limits. It's it's a part of the fair use doctrine of copyright. Or is it homage? Uh, there are limits. But but yeah, something that would be an homage or would be comment and criticism. That's really the key: comment and criticism. And if your work can comment and criticize another work. Uh, you can you can have fun with it all day. The real uh, I'll tell you what the the hole that was blown into parody slash satire slash comment and criticism is the two life crew case, uh, which took place I think when we were in high school, and in it uh, you know is our, your favorite rappers in the world, Jim Two Life Crew. <laughs> I, I know they're your favorite did a quote-unquote parody of uh, Roy Orbison's Oh Pretty Woman. Okay. And uh, lyrics not to be repeated here because then I'd lose that clean uh, uh, label. Should be the family show. iTunes. (laughs) Some family show. We're talking about copyright and trademark. But but, but anyway, it it was funny because I I think I have the clean label there on iTunes and, and my friend Amy said to me, are there episodes where you're dirty? Uh, no. <laughs> Is that a challenge or a question? I, I know. <laughs> but anyway, we could do play, um, you know, know, trademark of Playboy magazine or something, right? That, that's true. I we'll, we'll we'll hold that thought for a second. <laughs> but uh, but but getting back to Two Life Crew, they they made this very crude, um, uh, you know, these very crude lyrics um, about hygiene. Okay, <laughs> we'll just say that. Uh, and uh, as you can imagine, Acroft Rose, which uh, at the time owned the Roy Orbison catalog, filed a lawsuit for copyright infringement. <clears throat> now, there are two issues, that, two really broad issues. One was the fact that the first 
five to ten seconds really are just the first five to ten seconds of the original recording before it breaks out into the um, the parody, for lack of a better word. And then two is the fact that there was a, a parody. And the court seemed to uh, roll everything into one by saying this entire recording mocks... Um, you know, mocks the dating process in general. Whereas, Oh Pretty Woman was um, was an ode to running into somebody randomly, and you know, being uh, you know, you know, feeling forlorn at the the inability to to meet this person until the end, when when of course she's walking back to me, as as Roy Orbison sang. Uh, whereas the Two Life Crew version mocks dating and and sexuality in general. By, you know, being, you know, you know, it's, you know, it's very crude, frankly, but that's basically, we don't judge on crudeness, um, you know, under copyright law and comment and criticism, we judge on is there comment and criticism at all? Does it harken back to the original? And I'm not sure that I agree with the Supreme Court that in that particular you know, case that it did harken back to the original or that it did mock the original, but basically the Supreme Court said, same, uh, you know, song, uh, different lyrics. It mocked, you know, the general, you know, general thinking of of the original, and so it's comment and criticism. I, I'm I'm not a huge fan of the decision. I think it could have been done a little more narrowly, but um, it, it, basically anything that comments or criticizes the original is not going to be you know, found to be an infringement of copyright law. So in, in this particular instance, I'd say, yeah, no, they're, they're Marvel's making comments or, or criticisms on what DC characters are like, and, and they're having fun with it, and, and it would be A-OK. Well, all right, that's interesting, because the characters, of course, have taken on a life of their own. Uh, oh, I don't doubt separate, that. Separate and apart of their obvious uh, analogs. But, you, know, <laughs> you know, and I guess... I guess uh, I guess it would fall into one of these exceptions, but in the very first, um, I don't know if you know this, but there was a Spider-Man and Superman were the first inter-company uh, crossover back in the mid-70s. They had a treasure, no, they did a treasury that. size, which is a giant, massively, when I say big, I don't mean many pages, I mean dimensionally large comic book issue. And uh, they eventually Marvel did this comic book series called What If, uh, where basically they sort of, what oh, if, what if this happened, cool, right? right? And and in the very first issue ever of What If, there is a uh, they say What if aliens came and super strong aliens came from another planet, referencing Spider Man versus Superman, which is not of course in the continuity, and it has a blue right. arm with a, fist, arm with a fist, fist, which is obviously Superman, but I guess such a uh, such a vague reference it would not you know call upon the the powers of pat, of intellectual property law to uh, weigh in on it. Would that be uh, probably? Yeah. Yeah. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but you know, here, but you know, I don't know. I mean, it's just one of those things. I guess, it, I guess, it, whatever like gets the hackles up on somebody when they see something. And, hey, that looks like something because like there's this old character called the Shield, who looks like Captain America's original triangular shield because he originally had a triangle shield, and he's of course he's red, white, and blue, okay. World War II era character. And Marvel Comics, or at least then it was called Timely Comics, they said, hey, that's too much like our guy, and they, they litigated that. So I guess, would it be fair to say that a lot of the stuff comes up with, with that that looks like something that, that is ours, you know, as opposed to, you know, some sort of weird technicality of, of trying to line up criteria, right? Is that, is that about fair? Because a lot of these characters don't 
they're very similar because they're all comic book superheroes. Well, I, I mean that that does that does sort of come to the point of at, at what point are we, you know, treading on each other's feet? You know, is there nothing new? Things like that. Um, that's kind of my, you know, from a philosophical standpoint. Yeah, at what point are you just not copying from somebody else because you can't? Because you came up with Swamp Thing, and I think if I, I have to wiki it, <laughs> but I'm pretty certain the Swamp Thing came out after Man Thing, <laughs> which is a Marvel character. <laughs> I'm not sure one of them came out first, but I'm pretty sure Manti came out first. But they're pretty similar characters. But you know, no lawsuit was filed because I guess they right. said, "Well, it pro- probably wasn't um, uh, popular enough, frankly." Yeah, and I guess you can create, even though it has a similar looking characters, you can create a a, a story and a backstory and a, and ventures that are markedly different that make give that character a different context. I would think um, because you know, Manti is. And Swamp Thing have now are completely different characters, even though they're both sort of swamp creatures. And they both, by the way, are the... Oh, I can't remember what it's called. I want to look at it now because it's a crazy name. But they're both sort of rip-offs of another character called, like, I don't know, like the Muck Monster. Yeah, I think that's about right. And so, and they're all, they're all very similar, but I guess no one thought, you know, that we're not going to fight over this because they're just sort of goofy little characters. Is that... Well, the, the, it could be it could be because the value is just not not worth fighting. Uh, it, it could be because right when you're thinking about creativity and authorship, there there very well may not have been any creativity and authorship in any of these particular characters. I oh mean, no, it's and, called the uh, heap. I'm sorry, it's a character called the heap. And 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 when you look at these, compare it to the creature from the Black Lagoon. What's the difference? Well, yeah, well that one isn't made of moss, right? I mean, that's that's sort of a undersea creature. <laughs> obviously, Anthony. Obviously, no. But I know both of these look like all these look like Moss Man from the He-Man continuity. If you if you're those of you are He-Man fans, because Moss Man is like a green guy with who's made of moss and does all these weird things. So uh, I guess at some point, I guess it's fair to say, and it sort of harkens back to I guess our Roger Dean podcast from a few, from a month ago or so, is that at some point you have like a like an, like an, uh, maybe I'm using the wrong words and, and stuff, but at some point you have like an, like an artist, a, um, like a creative type. And, and, you know, at some point you can't own that type forever, right? So you have like muck monsters who are green and come out of a swamp and do certain things. And that's, that's a sort of character and no one person can own that at some point. Just like it, just yes. like it, when we were talking about Roger Dean, nobody can own like a like a flying island because that's just a thing that, that you that that exists in a creative sort of way. You know what I mean? I don't know if I'm using the right no, words, I, but that's no. I know exactly what you mean. If there's nothing, if there's not a work of of authorship, and and so there's not some kind of thought or creativity that goes into it because somebody else has done it. That's where you know you. I might guess you're talking about the way that okay, a space opera. You know, you can't have a monopoly on the space opera at some point. Otherwise, it's there'd be only one, and that would be uh, what I guess Star Wars or whatever predates Star Wars. Exactly. Star Trek. No, you're you know right. So so what is right? What is and then you'd have to define what a space opera is. So you're not really going to be sitting there designing, uh, d- defending genres. Um, it's it's going to have to be what the work of authorship is. The stories. The the. I don't want to say powers, but you know, because that's a part of the stories. But characteristics, all anything that goes into authorship, that's what you have to go into, and that's what you have to delve into. Um, when you're dealing with character designs, you know, it depends on the artist, of course, and what does the artist know. So, so those are going to be difficult issues. One of the first copyright cases I, I handled, and I'm sure I've, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, uh, is that uh, is from a a 
you know, someone who worked as a cameraman on a documentary. And he was trying to film this documentary, and the producer or director was doing an interview, and the director had about three questions. And after the third question, my client chimed in and said, is that all you have? The director's like, yeah, that's all I have. Well, you know, you're not going to be able to make a documentary, a feature-length documentary, without sitting here and talking to this person, you know, for, you know, three hours, four hours. So the guy didn't have any more questions. And then, you know, my client chimed in with a bunch of questions and got this person to speak. So we argued and we settled, by the way. We, 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 that wasn't going to be something that, that you'd take to, to court. But my clients, you know, our argument was, look, my client, you know, yeah, my client was hired. My client filmed. My client wasn't hired to ask questions. And my client wound up asking questions. And my client wound up creating a lot of the interviews for, you know, a lot of the interview time that you get your documentary from. So um, sometimes the work of authorship can be, uh, argument can be a little tenuous, but um, you, you really just have to be careful as to what really is a work of authorship and what's maybe not a ripoff, but not all that original. Well, I mean, how does, how does ownership of a property uh, happen or work where a character is an already established thing. So, for example, you have uh, Marvel, you have the mighty Thor, right? I mean, obviously, Stan Lee, well, maybe he's a time-traveling Norseman, who maybe, you know, who knows, but he, uh, probably not, and therefore did not create Thor as a person or a character. But he's created this caricature, as it were, of a Marvel character. So does he now own Thor forever and ever? Or no? Well, again, you got to take it, everything's going to happen, you got to take it... Um... You got to take it step by step, and what was created, and for whom, and under what auspices. If, and and I'm looking at today's world only because all of these old comic book arguments, for the most part, have been settled by other agreements or ruled ruled upon. Um, but looking forward, if you're a comic book company or a burgeoning comic book company or whatever the, the, the case may be, you need to make sure that, that your agreements are in place. You need to make sure that your work-for-hire agreement's in place if these artists are not going to be uh, employees. No, that's true. But I mean, in terms of the character, you know, like Thor, I mean, that, that's, a, that's not a comic book. I mean, it is now, but it, it's, it's something that predates comic books, and he just made it into something. Well... And he made it into something. And what I would say is, is if you want to do, um, if you want to do something to the effect of um, uh, a comic book yourself about Norse mythology, as long as, um, you know, as long as you're not stepping over what Marvel has done, you'll be okay because Thor is a, you know, Norse mythology. I mean, if you wanted to do something about um, you know, the 300, I mean, that's a historical right. uh, story. So you're able to do that. That's in the public domain. Those things are in the public domain. Their expressions, you know, the, the comic book company's expressions of those stories are not in the public domain. But if you're not doing their expressions of those stories, you'll be okay. Yeah, because I think comic books do that all the time. Like Marvel uses Goliath. As a, as a name, for example, Hercules is all over the place. Exactly. Uh, the, all the gods and goddesses are used, you know, pretty fairly commonly. Um, so I guess it's the the names, and I guess the the, the 
I guess it's, it's how their expression is how you say, right? So it's, Goliath is a is a biblical person. Is, exactly. is what he is, but you know, Goliath as the the Hawkeye using pin particles is totally different. You hit it. You hit the you hit the nail nail on the head there. I mean, yeah, and I got you silent. I mean, I'm surprised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, you're the purveyor of all uh, internet, or I mean, all intellectual property knowledge. That's why I, I grill you when I when I get a chance. <laughs> you know. I do my best, sir. On that note, I have an answer to go right, so I should probably go. So can go I, can right I say that you're going to go fight for truth, justice in the American way, or is that also copyrighted by Superman? My my client's Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good response. Good one. All right. <laughs> Jim, thank you so much for for joining. Anytime. Us. Thanks, Anthony, for having me. No problem. I'll talk to All you right, soon. Bye-bye.